Hello and welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Miller. The story of my guest today is nothing short of a miracle. Lisa Kratz Thomas went from the crack house to the state house, from living on the streets in our nation's capital to being appointed to a Senate subcommittee that studied prisoner reentry in Virginia. Lisa's story is one of not only conquering adversity and unleashing potential, but of the power of Jesus Christ to forgive all sins and make us new in Him. In our conversation today, Lisa shares about her past survival from drug addiction, prostitution, abortion, homelessness, and incarceration. After years of filling her life with her addictions, she finally surrendered to Jesus Christ. And as Lisa says, after I got saved, my life was never the same. Lisa, thank you so much for joining me today on the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm um, just really excited to share your story with listeners. Well, I'm, I'm happy to be here, and I am always excited to share what God has done in my life and to remind people that He is loving them and He wants to shed His grace and mercy upon them. So uh, I'm really excited to be here, and, and I'm so honored that you'd ask me to, to share my testimony. Well, and I, as I told you earlier, I was just praying this morning for the right timing to share your story. Um, and when the Lord put on my heart this morning, when I was reading kind of the final chapters of your book, where you share that you received this in your spirit, a love letter from the Lord. And in that letter, you talk about just, he hung on the cross for forgiveness for all of us. And none of us are too far gone. And I thought this is this week. I mean, it's perfect mm-hmm. timing to share your story because it's an example of none of us are too far gone for the Lord and none of our lives are too messed up for him. It's absolutely true. And, and, you know, I, I think back and I think about my perception of God was always that if you were good, God loved you. And if you were bad, not so much. And so I had this, this idea that God not only didn't love me, but he didn't like me very much. And so when, when, um, you know, as we will, we'll go through the beginning of my life, but as we're talking about this, you know, redemption is just one of those things that you feel could never happen to you. You feel that you've done so much and that you're so bad and that you're so far gone that you're the last person on God's radar. And I think the beautiful aspect of the love of Christ is that you're never too far gone. He never, ever, ever gives up on you. And that is a strong message of hope to anyone because people just don't believe that. So yeah, I think it's a great time to talk about um, God's redemption and his love for us and his ability to, to deliver us from places that we never thought we could be delivered from. And like you shared, like you just felt like you were never good enough. And it just kept piling on throughout your life as we hear your story, because in your bio that I'll just read that you openly say, I'm a formerly incarcerated, homeless, crack addict, prostitute, and have had several abortions. So it's like your life is an example of all the sins that society thinks are some of the worst of God. He wipes the slate clean for us. And, and he does. And, you know, here, here's the thing. So if we look back, um, you know, one of the things that helped me so much, uh, was when I started before I really surrendered my life to, to Christ, I got involved in 12 step recovery. And, um, and one of the steps, uh, in 12 step recovery encourage you, encourages you to go back and to really find out the exact nature of what's going on. And, you know, for us as Christians, that's to find out what was, what was the time that something switched? How, how did this, this like 
perverted way of thinking about God start with us. And so what I learned was that it started for me when I was five years old. And, you know, it's kind of hard to imagine that. I mean, I've got children that are in college now, but when I think back about when my kids were five, I'm thinking, were they even, you know, could they even comprehend what I, what I was feeling? And I'm sure they could, but I always felt like God was mad at me. And in fact, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I even, that was one of my first bullet points I had to ask you about, because you say Mm -hmm. in your book, I was awakened to the realization that the evil one had been trying to kill me since I was five years old, which, wow, that's heavy and powerful. Um, And, and so, and, and so I can tell you, I can remember like it was yesterday. I mean, I can remember, I I went to um, a, a private Uh, elementary school. And, and, you know, I'm 60 years old. So way back when (laughs) you could walk home from school, a group of kids could walk home from school and it wasn't an issue. You could walk a couple of blocks and, and that's what we lived from the school. So I would walk home every day. And, you know, one day I walked, I was walking home and and I I crossed over this little bridge that kind of went over two sides of a brook and, and I looked into the water and I thought if I fell in, I don't think anybody'd miss me. And then my, my second thought was if I fell in, I think the world might be better off. Hmm. And those are sad thoughts for such a little girl, you know, but one of the things people ask me is they said, well, what were you, why did you feel that way about yourself? I mean, were you experiencing, you know, some sort of abuse at home? Was there, was there something that happened? And you know, let's be honest, you know, we all experience some form of dysfunction because we're human beings and, you know, our parents do the best they can. Some of us experience more than others, because if you don't have, um, an atmosphere of unconditional love, if God is not present in your home, people do the best they can on their own devices. And we know where that gets us. Right. Right. (laughs) And even when God is present in your home, we all, we mess up still. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But the propensity, you know, the propensity not to have that, that love, that underlying love without the love of God and understanding it, it's confusing. So, so I didn't have that and everything kind of ran off of, um, if I was, if I was obedient, then I felt loved. If I wasn't, then I felt shamed. Now, you know, we can take this back even a step further because when I, you know, parents, children's minds and attitudes and feelings about themselves is really perceived through their parents, how their parents treat them, how they're loved. And so, um, you know, my mom, was illegitimate. I mean, so I'm 60, she was in her eighties and, you know, back in the thirties, that was not something at all that was accepted. So she grew up with a real concept and underlying foundation of shame Mm -hmm. and she could never shake it. She, she never went to counseling. She just never found a way to really get rid of that. So, you know, as a child, that generational curse was kind of passed down to me. I'm not saying she woke up every morning and said, I'm going to shame you. Um, but no, but it, it, we're not always aware that of those generational curses that hold us in bondage and continue. Absolutely. You, that, and you hit the nail on the head. She wasn't aware, but she was in so much pain herself that she really did the best that she could do with, yeah. with, you know, what she was given. So, so what happened for me was when things would happen in my life that I needed 
I needed to, to have the, um, unconditional love of Christ. I could not get that because I always felt that shame stepped in and blocked me. Does that make any sense? It was yeah. that wall. Absolutely. It does. Um, yeah. And then that pattern continued through your childhood, through your life. Um, that's kind of followed you until you finally did find Christ. Uh, yes, because shame is the thing that says when somebody finds out what you're really, really like, they're going to run as far away from you as possible. So I had this in my mind. So I became this great imposter. I became mm-hmm. the actor on a stage. And I'm telling you, I was good at it. I mean, it didn't matter if I was having, you know, cocktails with an attorney or if I was hanging out in the crack house. I was a chameleon. And I could do and be anything I had to be in order for that for those people that were around me to accept me and and for me not to feel that I was an outsider. And that even you share that that it started at a young age, just the lying. You were a great liar and could make up just so anyone would love you and you would make up the story to be what they wanted. Oh, yeah. I mean, I could say that, you know, they people would ask me, well, you know, what was your first addiction? What did you what drugs did you start with? And I said, what was lying? Mm -hmm. Lying was my first the first thing I was addicted to. And it was something that went with me through the years because see what a lie does is it, it, it creates this fallacy that you're in control. And even if it's just for a moment, if I'm telling you a lie for that moment, I feel like I can control what you think about me. So if I feel bad about myself and I lie, then I can feel at least momentarily that I'm loved and accepted. Right. And that's such a good, like what you just said that your first addiction was lying and that just dawned on me that, yeah, we can listen to your story of being a crack addict prostitute and think, oh goodness, I'm not that bad, but we all have these addictions, whether it's to people pleasing, envy, all of those things to stuff. And God doesn't look at like, oh, hers is way worse. I can't help her. Hers is not. So it's like, we're, we're on an even playing field here with the Lord and all have these holes we're looking to fill. Absolutely. Because, you know, where there's an atmosphere of lack, you're always going to find a way to compensate. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they're coping mechanisms, if you mm-hmm. will. So wherever we feel that there's lack, um, we figure out a way to, to find something that will help us cope with those feelings of lack. And as I said, for me, it was lying and, and that was great. But you know, the thing, this is the thing, whenever you, you utilize anything except God and what he offers for you and, and his, his principles and his scripture and, and the way that he wants for us to live his life. If we, if we replace that with anything, what happens is it quits working. Mm-hmm. You only it maybe even if, if it's worked for 10 years, eventually, whatever you put in that place where God needs to rule and reign will quit working. And then you look for more and different things to fill that emptiness. And that is so much of your story because you did start seeking other things, the alcohol, the drugs. And so you went to an all girls Catholic high school, but by the time you were 14, you were smoking pot, dating, having sex, all of that, right? Absolutely. I started out, you know, just drinking a little bit and the next thing was pot. And then the next thing was sex. And, um, those things 
uh, I practiced all through high school. But I'll tell you, like I said, though they, they started to lose the ability to help me escape. So I was constantly looking for something else to take me into a dimension of freedom or, or perceived freedom. And so that led me, of course, into harder drugs. And, um, you know, not long after that, I was introduced to crack cocaine. And um, I can tell you that I thought that was the solution to my problems. And it was for a very short period of time because I absolutely felt nothing when I was high. I didn't have to think or feel about uh, myself in the way that, that, you know, I, I did previously. So it was one of those things that, that really helped me escape. But, you know, the issue is when you cross over into those other lines and you, things become blurry, you start to, um, accept things and do things that you probably would never do, um, if you were in your sober state of mind. Now that's not an excuse, but it's a reality. <laughs> right. Right. You because, know? and I'm sure that once the crack cocaine addiction started, that is what you were t- completely not in your right mind and it, you needed more and more to have that fix. And then that led you into the prostitution, the homelessness. So share a little bit how you went from that. We talked how you went from pot then pretty quickly to crack cocaine. Was that after high school? I'm guessing it was. So, you know, I got out of high school. I, I, I got a job with the uh, department of justice and the criminal division. How funny is that? Um, and and then, um, I worked for a law firm and I got fired from there because I was, I was falsifying my time records and I ended up bartending. And so, in that atmosphere that of course opened up a lot of different avenues for me. And, um, I met a man, well, I had met many men, but I met a man that I, I literally fell in love with and, um, he was as sick as I was and he was as hurting as I was. And you know, that saying that like attracts like, mm-hmm. uh, well, trust me, that's exactly what happened in our situation. Like attracted, like he, he was hurting, he was searching and, um, we were both introduced to, to crack cocaine and you know, crack is one of those things, just like heroin is today. Although crack is not physically addicting, it is mentally and emotionally addicting. And, um, I just, you know, I was willing to give everything up in my life to, to get high and to stay high. And so, um, you know, I was unemployable and he, um, he became very violent so I was always afraid to leave him because when I did, he would find me and he would beat me up and I would stay. And just like yeah. anybody else who has ever dealt with domestic violence, it's one of those things that you're stuck. You know, you, you are stuck. You feel like if you leave, you're going to be hurt. If you stay, you're going to be hurt. And you have to remember how I felt about myself. Right. So, you And you had a very just a, your mind was very skewed, too, with the crack cocaine and that addiction. I mean, you wanted that just as much as that guy. So you were about willing to do anything for yeah. that high. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, anything. And because of, well, you're with him, that is kind of, he became your pimp, correct? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what forced you, not kind of, it is what forced you into prostitution and literally selling yourself for the drugs and for him. It, it did. And, and, you know, that's where my life ended up. And, you know, I can tell you that that was not a thought in my mind the first day that I cracked the lid on that bottle of wine and drank it down. 
I, I never thought, you know, 15 years earlier that I would end up where I ended up. But, you know, it's, it's one thing after another and here you are. And, and so, you know, I was prost- We were homeless. We were living on the streets in DC. I was prostituting my body so we could have a place to live in a, in a hotel, a place to stay and a place to get high. Um, and the other lie that you talk about during that time too, was that you were lying to yourself was the radical women's movement during that time of free sex, free love. So you were looking like, Oh, I've got these rights to exercise, to have sex with whoever I want. All of that was going on with you too. Oh yeah. It was, uh, it was definitely, uh, I can bring home the bacon fried up in the pan. I am woman. Hear me roar. Uh, the seventies women's movement was all about total independence. We did not at that time, they were, they were absolutely pro abortion, uh, pro choice. And they, you know, in the seventies, there was not, you did not go in and, and, and get a sonogram. They, they didn't exist. And if they did, they were very far and, you know, a few in between. Um, so, you know, the, they were pushing the notion that abortion, uh, the baby was a mass of cells or clump of tissue. And so when you hear that, you know, how you know that when you hear a lie long enough, sometimes it becomes truth. Um, we know that in our, in, in the media today. I mean, when you hear something long enough, you start to accept it as, as a truth. And so I absolutely just accepted the fact that abortion was a way to, uh, eliminate consequences and that it was okay. And you did admittedly, you were using it as quote birth control because you weren't taking your birth control pills regularly when you were high and you had five abortions. And at that time you just pushed that down. Like it's no big deal. I'm going to move on and did not deal with those. No, I didn't deal with them at all. Uh, in fact, I wanted to forget them. I didn't, I, I just wanted to pretend like they never happened. Um, and I love if people get a chance, I'll put your the name of the book in your show notes, um, The Light in Our Darkness, because in that book, you go back and forth with chapters with a um, the abortion doctor, Dr. Nathanson at that time and the lies of the abortion and what you were believing. So it's really neat how your book is written, um, just believing those lies and how you fell for them. Um, so we'll go. So going back to you, to your story with, like you said, before we talk, start talking about the abortion that you were also just pushing down, not dealing with. You were homeless, but you hadn't been in prison yet, correct? No. Well, okay. you know, it, it, it kind of all meshes together. Yes. And it's hard to get an exact timeline, um, yes. you know, as we're talking. But during that time, uh, what what ended up happening was, uh, you know, I I was writing bad checks because I was, I was really you know, I mean, it was hard to turn tricks. I just didn't want to do it. I mean, I, I, you know, I did it because I had to. Um, but I, you know, I, I was, I had been writing bad checks and I, um, they picked me up one night. I went into a restaurant, wrote this check. And next thing I know the police are there and they put me in handcuffs and they take me in. And, um, you know, it was so amazing. Cause I can still remember sitting in the back of that paddy wagon and thinking they have the wrong person. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, this is how deceived mm-hmm. my thinking was. I, yeah. I'm not kidding you. I mean, it is amazing how deceptive Satan truly is and, and, and the enemy and how it can make you believe that what you're doing is acceptable and okay. And so, um, you were yes. so deep in that darkness that you just thought, "What? Well, I, I didn't do anything. I'm not." So you thought they had the wrong person, but oh, I'm like, "You had yeah. the wrong, sure, wrong person." Uh, wow. No, they didn't have the wrong person. They had the right person. And you know, I look back today, and I am so absolutely grateful for that incarceration. And that's why when I work with people who are, you know, involved in in uh, addiction recovery, and I talk to a lot of parents and and spouses and that their loved ones are, you know, addicted and they're just so afraid they're going to get locked up. And I'm like, you know what? It's, it's not the worst thing that could happen to them because it was really a time for me that I started to see things in a different light. Now I can tell you, I didn't do anything to help my recovery, to help my spiritual walk. I was just so closed up in in so much pain. But here's the thing. It was the first time I had been sober for any length of time since I was 14 years old. And so I was incarcerated for a year. And so, you know what it is? It's like God starts pulling pieces back together and you don't even know what he's doing. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's like, you have no idea what he's doing. Um, and you yeah. said you met, share a little bit, you met a woman there that just spoke a little bit of life into you. I mean, that's kind of one of the pieces, how God starts working a little bit. Share about that. It is. So, so I, um, there was a correctional officer. Uh, I still remember it like yesterday. I mean, she was just gorgeous black woman with her hair pulled back in a tight bun and this perfect red lipstick and beautifully manicured red nails. And one night she called me out to her desk and she said, Lisa, come out here. And I sat down and she said, she said, baby, what are you doing here? And I said, I started to recite all of my um, charges and my convictions. And she goes, no, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not asking you why you're here. I'm asking what is a woman like you doing in a place like this? And, and it took me back because I'm thinking she, she doesn't know what kind of person I am. She has no idea what kind of person I am. I'm a horrible person. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, baby, you have got way too much potential. There is way too much inside of you. God has something in you and he has something for you to do. And you have got to move away from this. You just remember you are valuable. And I'm telling you, it was the first time that I can ever really remember and I'm, I'm not, I'm not over-exaggerating this, that I can ever remember anyone speaking words of life into me like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, for the past 10 years, everybody, you know, was, was calling me names and my family would, would tell me to get away and nobody wanted anything to do with me unless they were a man and they could get something from me. Yeah. And so this was just, I mean, it resonated with me. Like you cannot believe. I mean, it went to my core. And that's so powerful. As you're saying that I'm thinking like, yeah, you were, you were homeless for two years. You were a prostitute. When do we ever go speak life into quote, those people we don't as Christians as like we should, I mean, Jesus loves them as much as us, but we are so guilty of not speaking life into them. And this one woman that did it for you was something that turned a switch for you. 
It did. And and it didn't happen immediately, but that's how it is. It's, you know, it's just like planting a seed. You plant it in the fall and then you don't see anything all winter. But, you know, the first couple days of warm weather, you see those things starting to spark, the little green pieces coming out of the ground. And, and that's, that's what happened because when I got out of jail, I met my pimp boyfriend. I walked Which is crazy to me. I, I, when I read well, that in the book, I'm like, no, no, don't do that. I, so what does that but, happen? Well, here's the thing. Here it is again. When you, I hadn't seen him for a year. Yeah. Um, I had nowhere to go and all, and he had the, you know, he had the gift of manipulation. I mean, he would be able, he could tell me on the phone, how beautiful I was, how much he loved me, how much he had changed, how much he wanted our life to be different. And see, that's the thing. I wanted my life to be different, except, you know, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. So I, I just wanted a good life and I just was hoping that he had really changed, but Hey, you know, after a pitcher of beer, writing another bad check, we were back at the crack house. And, you know, about half an hour after that, I was getting my head beat in as usual, but that was another pivotal part of my story. Well, and you doing that is such is is another example of the reform that's needed for prisoner reentry. I mean, so often as we had in a podcast much earlier um, with a local woman, Rhonda Bear, that does that in my area. But working with women when they leave prison, they don't have a place to go. And your story of going back to your pimp and drugs is all too common. And unfortunately, um, so much reform is still needed. And that, that gets to later in your story of the work the Lord had you to do. So you left doing the drugs, getting beat up again. Then what happens after that? So, you know, um, I, I had moved in with my court appointed attorney and it was, it was, here we, here we go again. Another Mm -hmm. guy, same patterns. Yeah. Same pattern. Um, anyway, I, I started going to recovery meetings and I started to, 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 to really maybe think that there was a God. I mean, I walked into these rooms and these people were so happy and they, they didn't care what I had done. And in fact, they had embraced me and said, it's okay. And, and I started, you know, I, I had, I had people in my life that were mentoring me and that's where I got saved. I, I mean, I, I listened to a set of tapes by Joyce Meyer and I heard They were called grace, grace, and more grace. And I heard in those tapes uh, that, that Jesus loves you. And you know, how many times do you think I've heard that in my life? Hundreds. But that day, at that time, at that moment, it went into my spirit and I felt the spirit of God. And I started to realize, oh my gosh, God, maybe God really does love me. And I can remember pulling over and just saying, you know what, if you're real, you better show me. Mm -hmm. And I felt this overwhelming sense of peace that came over me that I had never experienced before in my life. Well, I love that you, you talk, you say you, you, you encountered Jesus in the recovery, the 12 step recovery. We've got a room full of addicts and people with drug problems and lots of issues, but you say in your book, Jesus Christ lives in the rooms of recovery. And I, I love that because it is well, people, messed up people that Jesus is still there for. Yeah. He didn't, he, you know, Jesus, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Yes. That's who he came to save. And I, and trust me, I was lost. We were lost, but there's, but there is such a hope, uh, when you can really catch that, the, that, that, 
God is a loving God. He's not a taskmaster. He's not anyone who's waiting to hurt you. He wants to help you and to love you. And so that opened up a whole new concept for me in my relationships um, and, and everything that I was doing in my life. And it still wasn't just tied up in an epo for you from that point, 12 steps and you're done. Um, it was still a difficult journey. So share a little bit of the next, the next pages of your story and what happened. So, you know, I had met a man, um, and, uh, a man named Tom and actually Tom and I have been married for 28 years. But mm-hmm. when I met Tom, um, you know, he was different than most men I had met and, um, we, uh, I relapsed on one weekend and, uh, he had to come and pick me up. And I just kept remember, I just kept thinking he is going to come down this street and he's going to tell me, get your stuff and get out. I've had enough. And God in his infinite wisdom and in his mercy and his grace sent me a man who loved me. <laughs> this always makes me yeah. kind of just tear up. Yeah. You know, he sent me a man who loved me from the inside out. And, um, I got into that car after being gone all weekend. He had no idea where I was. I'd been smoking crack all weekend. And I got into the car and he looked at me and he put his hand on my leg. And he said, Lisa, he said, why do you keep doing this to yourself? He said, I love you and I want the best for you. And you, there's more to life than this. And I, I have never felt so loved in my entire life. And that was the beginning truly the beginning of my, of my seeking of my daily, just hunger for the Lord. I mean, I would go to three, four recovery meetings today because I felt the presence of God in those meetings. And his, and Tom's ability to just love you unconditionally was such an example of Christ's love. And probably the first time that you really felt that from a person, I'm guessing. It, absolutely. It was because I, he didn't want anything but for me to be happy. Um, and so I, you know, that's a concept I just could not understand. I'm like, what is wrong with you? Um, Well, especially all the men that you had had in your life that had used you, abused you, everything you were expecting that one more time. And that's not what happened. So was that the last time that you drank and used drugs on that day? It was. And that was, uh, just a few weeks ago, April 5th, um, 1991. That is 28 years ago that, um, I have not had a drink or a drug or, or a mood altering anything. Um, wow. so- yeah, it's a miracle. I, I mean, yeah. and it's even more of a miracle because I didn't get sober until I was 30. So, mm. you know, that's a long time to be in a lifestyle, but you know, the Lord is so amazing. He is just, I mean, when he, when he wants to redeem you, when he wants to do for you, the things that he has planned it, it, you know, like I said, he's going to do it. And, um, it's, I was, I was just looking for a scripture. It's in Galatians where he talks about being in the light and you know, that, that the Lord calls us into the light and here it is. It, it's, it's beautiful. It's, he says, uh, it's actually in Ephesians five fourteen. He says, for the light makes everything visible. This is why it said, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will give you light. And I can tell you, just like when you're in a dark room and you just crack the door, the whole room is, a, is 
illuminate it with light. That's how my life was, Adrian. That's how mm-hmm. that's how he came into my life. And he rose me from the dead because I was dead spiritually and emotionally. I was yeah. dead. And that's what he does. He gives us life. And it is, it, like you said, it was a miracle for you. Yes. It really, really was. Everything would point to she's hopeless. She's going to remain an addict, but no, the Lord made you new in him. So that man you married, did you guys marry shortly thereafter? I don't know how, how the story played out there. I mean, yeah. I assume he walked beside you for your healing and recovery and the 12 steps played a big role continued to. Yes, absolutely. We, we got married about six months after that. And as I said, we've been married 28 years. Um, wow. and you know, been seeking God, um, from that very first day, from that very first day, we've been in hot pursuit. (laughs) And I know you share in your book openly, uh, it wasn't just rainbows and roses after that, because you decided that you guys wanted to have children, but you were not getting pregnant. And that was kind of the next part of your recovery and forgiveness of yourself, because you blamed your past life of the abortions, that you weren't able to get pregnant. So share a little bit about that piece of your story. So we, you know, we tried, uh, we started to try immediately when we, when we got married and, um, it was three years, um, of, of trying of operations of procedures. And I can tell you every single month I would hear from the enemy in my spirit, Mm -hmm. you had a chance, you murdered your babies. Mm -hmm. Sorry, you'll never be a mother. And I, I mean, every month when my period came, I would just cry. I would just cry out to God. And I can remember one specific day I was just at the end of my rope and I was like, Lord, you have got to help me. I mean, you know, I know what I've done. I've confessed to you, father. I just can't live like this. You know, I, I, I know that I was guilty. And I know that your grace is enough to save me. And you've shown me forgiveness in so many areas of my life. I know I was promiscuous. I, I, I couldn't stop using and you just stepped in and, and you helped me. And I said, you know, but there's something inside of me that has been hidden for so many years that I have not dealt with father. And that's those abortions. You know, God is so loving. This is the thing that he will not put everything on you at once for you to, for you to deal with. And Mm. there were other things that, that he allowed me to clean up in my life. There were other things that I was able to do to bring a spiritual strength and stamina because I have, I have to tell you that abortion absolutely annihilates the innate God-given right of power in a woman. Mm-hmm. And it stole everything for me. And I, I just got chills when you said that, because that is such powerful truth that women are not told. You they, know, it's the opposite yes. lie that we are fed. And what you just said is absolute truth. Yeah, we're told that, you know, that by choosing to end the life of an unborn baby, you're courageous. But but really your cowardice. And when we are living in cowardice, this is as far away from our true identity as we can get. And so if you look at my story, if you read this book and you see, you can see how that cowardice kept me in that bondage and using those coping mechanisms. Cause it's like, maybe I would have lived a different life. Maybe I could have gotten, you know, uh, saved earlier. I don't know, but I do know this, that those abortions 
kept me in bondage to where the enemy wanted me. And so as I started to realize the connection, and I realized that I had never really, I had just shoved those abortions so deep down inside of me. It was almost like they didn't exist. I mean, seriously, I will tell you that because I couldn't cope with them any other way. Yeah. So I remember the day I was in my bedroom and I was praying And I got on the floor and I was crying and I was like, you have got to help me, Lord, please forgive me. The secret's been hidden so long. It it has, it has stopped my ability to love completely, to accept completely. And I said, you know, my, my own children endured the pain and death because of my selfishness. And I said, heal me, help me, father, God set me free. I want to be a mother. And You know, I, and we started out with this about how, when you don't know unconditional love and we operate on our own, um, you know, from our own basis, see all these years I had said, yeah, I had an abortion and I'm sorry, but I had never gotten on my face before the Lord and said, Lord, I need you to forgive me. And I am so sorry for what I've done. Mm, Yes. And like you say in that chapter of the book, it's that you, you quote first John one nine, that it's when we repent and confess our sins, that God is faithful to forgive us. And that's a powerful part of your story that we've got to go to the Lord and ask for forgiveness. He loves us, but asking him for forgiveness is huge in our healing. It it is. And you know what, what the enemy wanted to use for my harm, all of those things in my life, God said, Oh no, no, no. I'm turning all that around and I'm using it for my good. So I, I, I felt I was laying on the floor that day and I felt this urging to get up and write in my journal. I felt like God was telling me something. And in fact he was, and he wrote me the most beautiful love letter. And it, I, I, I just, I, I'd like to share it with you. I would love you to. That's, I was actually going to ask you, cause that, like I mentioned at the beginning of the show that re, when I read that this morning, that's when I thought this is such perfect timing. And, um, that would be wonderful if you could read it. And I would love for people as they hear this to listen and to, to hear, to put your own pain, your own shame, whatever it is, God is so willing to forgive. He said, dear Lisa, your times are in my hands. And so are your children. For years, I've waited for you to come to me, to reach for me instead of the bottle, the drugs or the men. Only I know and can fulfill the desires of your heart. And when you ask me for forgiveness, you're going to receive it. I hung on that cross to reconcile all humanity to God. And baby, I would have done it if you were the only person on earth. That's how much I love you. He said, your children are in heaven with their Abba Daddy, awaiting the arrival of their earthly mother, where there will be reconciliation. They love you. And so do I. Wow. Oh, that's making me tear up too, Lisa. I cannot imagine at that time how powerful that was and for you still to have that. And the line where you say, I would have done it for you if you were the only person on earth. I think that's what we need to hear because so often we think, oh, that's done for somebody else or Jesus died for everybody, which he did. But when you say he would have done it just for you, that's so powerful. And and when I mean just for you, I mean for for the, the woman who feels so insignificant in her life 
for the woman who has maybe um, gotten into compulsive eating, for the woman who feels as though she's not enough, for the woman who is a drug addict or who secretly drinks or the woman who is having an affair or the woman who just can never measure up or the woman who's had abortions, anything Satan can use to stop you, he will. But here's the thing. I got this moment of clarity. And this is when I realized, just like I shared with you, that that Jesus, he's the only one who can heal broken people. Mm-hmm. And he didn't come for the people on the hill. He came for the people in the valley. He came for the hurting, broken people. And that's why I love to share my testimony, because here's the thing. People feel that they'll never be good enough. Well, guess what? You won't. You right. will never be good enough. Right. But he is. And he and he gave his son so we could have that freedom. And I'm a recipient of it. And the other That's thing right. I love is that Jesus is no respecter of people. What he's done for me, what he's done for you, he will do for anyone if we seek him. Yeah. And that's a big part of your message that his, his message of grace and forgiveness is for anyone. It truly is. So I know you mentioned earlier that you have your, your children are in college. So obviously you got pregnant, correct? I did. I got pregnant not once, but twice. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of, of my family is that that generational curse of addiction yeah. has been broken in my family and uh, my immediate family. And, and uh, my son is very involved in ministry. My mm-hmm. daughter um, survived a life-threatening uh, condition and had a liver transplant three years ago. And I can tell you that... Um, they both are seeking the Lord and they know and accept his love. So what would you say your story shows that that general generational curse can be broken, but we both know there's lots of stories where those people, people just continue that generational curse. And it seems like it's not being broken, even though they've given their life to the Lord. But it's so, what would you say to those people that do feel hopeless in some of those curses or have done the 12 steps and feel like it's not working or they just can't break free? Well, what I would say is this, is that that's a lie from the pit of hell. You can break free. You can't, but this is the thing you have to be willing to give everything you have for what God wants you to be. And, and, and I can tell you, you know, I'm just one of those people. I still go into prisons. I've been incarcerated and you know, it's, nobody can tell somebody something like someone who's been there. And, and, and this is what I can tell you. My brain was needed to be washed. It needed industrial strength cleaner. So if I would, I didn't go to one meeting a day or three meetings a week, recovery meetings. I went to four meetings a day because I did not trust myself in between. I had to be brutally honest with me. And I think that that is the thing that is the most difficult for us to do. Who wishes to do that? Because then you become the hole in the donut. It's like, well, who am I anyway? But God knows who you are. He created you and he knows everything about you. And that's what you shared the first time you did the 12 steps that went to the recovery. 
you had the relapse, but then the second time you were all in, you got the sponsor, you, you were doing everything. You were all in for it. And that's like, you just said, you've got to be willing to do that hard work and it's not easy or a quick fix. But it's so worth it. Oh, yes. it is so worth it. You know, I looked for a high everywhere in my life and I found it in the Lord. Mm. I mean, I, I found it in being able to help people. I mean, you know, through my sobriety, I was able to um, start a nonprofit organization and uh, be the director of an organization called New Vision. It was a transitional home for women um, that came from incarceration back to society, to society. And I did that for nine years and it was just mm. the joy of my life. I've been able to serve on Senate subcommittee in the state of Virginia studying. Re-entry. Yeah, Tell me, tell me about that because, and we'll, I know we need to wrap up here soon, but your on your website, it says from the crack house to the state house. So That's tell me right. about, tell me about that part of your life, how God can just totally change things. I mean, this is, yeah. And this is the kind of stuff that blows your mind. I mean, uh-huh. you can't make this stuff up. Okay. So, so I was running, I was operating new vision and, uh, the speaker of the house of Virginia, we were in his, his delegation area and he called me and he said, Lisa, listen, I want to put you on a subcommittee that's steady studying reentry in the state. And I said, well, what do I do? He goes, oh, just show up down there. He goes, they'll they'll tell you what to do, but you've got so much experience. I want you to go. So I show up, I go down and I think we're going to sit around the table and discuss reentry. Oh no, no, no. We were like, you know, in, when you go to Senate hearings, you're up on, on a, on a platform high with your name in front and a microphone. And look, it was all of these, it was the head of public safety, the head of Department of Corrections, senators and, and, and delegates and, and the assistant attorney general and little old Lisa Kratz Thomas, you know, director of new vision. (laughs) And, and, And so here's the coolest thing that came out of that. I realized partway through the, the assistant attorney general, who's now a Supreme court judge. Um, he said to me, he said, Lisa, you do know that we can submit pieces of legislation to the general assembly to be considered for laws in the state. And I was like, what? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, where do I get the legislation? He said, well, that guy over there has a lot of, of, you know, legislation for offenders and former offenders. So I got the information. I went home that night. I started studying it and I picked five pieces of legislation that I could understand, you know, that I, that I was in agreement with and that I could argue. It came back in. We presented them. They were presented to the General Assembly. And that next voting cycle, three of those five pieces of legislation were adopted into Virginia state law. Wow. And here's a girl, crack addict, just a high school education. And God used you. (laughs) Hello. You know, don't tell me. I mean, when somebody tells me I just can't do it, I'm like, girl, you can do anything if you just trust the Lord. If you suit up and show up. God is a gentleman. He's not going to make you do it. But boy, I tell you, he'll open every door and hold it for you while you walk through it. Oh, I love that. Lisa, you have been awesome to talk to. I, I wish I could continue listening to you preach. I, <laughs> but I just think your life is an example of so many things. But you're on fire for the Lord. And like you said, that's where you get your high now because yep. he's done so much for you. You've tasted him and he is good and he's done so much good for you, but it's available to everybody. So Thanks tell so me, much. we'll put the links on your show notes, but where can you be found? If people want to read more of your books, if people want to find you online, where can you be found? 
Well, you can go to my website, which is lisakratzthomas.com, and that's K-R-A-T-Z, lisakratzthomas.com. And you can go to amazon.com for books. Uh, I am also a speaker, and I'm with Ambassador Speakers Bureau. So you can go there and check out my my, uh, information there. And, um, you just never know where I'm going to pop up or show up. So (laughs) that's right. And we'll put links to your books. Light in our darkness is the one that I read, but I know you have two more. This is not, this is your life, not a dress rehearsal and overcoming obstacles of reentry. So we will put links to both of those. So once again, Lisa, thank you so much for joining me today and just being so honest and transparent in your story. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for what you do. And I ask God to open up the windows of heaven and just pour out everything that you need to continue your quest. Amen. Thank you. I hope Lisa's story has left you in awe of the power of submitting our life to Jesus Christ. In this week after Easter, let's not forget about why Jesus came and surrendered his life for each of us. Lisa's story shows that no sin is too great for Jesus to take on and forgive when we allow him into our lives and ask for forgiveness. I encourage you to share this show with a friend who may need to hear this message. Also, if you're a regular listener of the show, please leave a review on iTunes so others can more easily find the show and hear the message of God's healing hand in the stories of our life.